Welcome to Between Sets. On today's episode, we sit down with two Australian weightlifters to discuss their two very different paths to the Commonwealth Games trials and everything that has transpired since. We also chat about their views on the current state of the sport and the direction they would like to see it move. We hope you enjoy it. Uh, g'day all and welcome to another episode of Between Sets with Daz and Simon. Uh, today we have some very special guests. Both of them are multiple time Australian representative and one of them happens to be the 69 representative at the Commonwealth Games. Today we have Sophia Zadova and Pip Malone. How are we doing girls? Good. How are you guys going? Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Well, how about we jump into it? How have things been since the Commonwealth Games trials? I think everyone would like to know what's training been like, what's life been like. Well, I guess for me it's it's different. Like Soph and I are in two different positions. So for me it's been nonstop for the last, oh, I'd say, 15 months, literally nonstop um, all the way up to now where we're you know, three, four weeks out from competing at the Com Games. So for me, nothing has really changed. I've been training hard, kept a very similar schedule for 15 months or so with obviously some comps in there along the way. Um, but, yeah, feeling good and ready to go. <laughs> Excellent. How about you, Soph? Obviously, we didn't get the result we were looking for at the trials. What's, uh, what's life and training been like for you since then? Well, I kind of hate saying it, given how hard everyone's going to the games is working, but most of the past, what, two months has been, I've just cruised, taken up surfing, played a bunch of tennis. Like, honestly, I've taken a major step backwards and just relaxed a bit. From everyone that I've spoken to, that's been the dominant theme of everyone that's not going to the games. We all took about a solid month off, only just getting back into it. So uni's picking up, just, you know, real life things while lifting's still going on on the sidelines. And obviously, obviously, it's probably a difficult time. Uh, talk us through that uh, that sort of experience. I mean, well, obviously, I was there firsthand, saw how hard you trained going in. Looked like we're in a pretty good position to perhaps take that uh, spot in the seventy-five kilo division. How have you been coping with uh, sort of the disappointment of not making the making the team? Yeah, it's a good question. Kind of spent a fair bit of time over the past month thinking about it, or two months rather. The initial stages, as you can imagine, are pretty heartbreaking anyone that's been in that situation anyone that's witnessed it would know but I suppose the main thing I'll say coming away from it the further removed you are from it the less of a problem you have because you ever think back you think about how your preparation could have or should have been different you work through things that went wrong things that went right and the kind of feeling of relief you have that you literally did everything you could have and things just didn't come together there's nothing more you can do, so you can't really kick yourself for it because sometimes shit just doesn't go the way you plan and doesn't make you any worse of a person. It just means on the day, didn't happen. So yeah. where did your coach go wrong, Soph? Awkward. <laughs> 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 he let me make a few too many decisions in the lead up to the games. So he believed me when I said I had it all together. So I took on extra study load at uni, took on extra work commitments, took on a bunch of personal things, and he was like, well, you say you've got it, go on. And it was going fine until it didn't. First you know, rule of coaching, Simon, is never believe shit your athlete tells you. <laughs> yeah. The first rule of coaching, you know, told to me someone wiser than myself, is, you know, athletes are ultimately responsible for, you know, their own fate. <laughs> 
Thanks, Des. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, on, on the other side, on the other side of the coin, we have a uh, coach-athlete relationship that went really well on the uh, on the other side. Pip, you're obviously going to the games, and Daz, you uh, gave her the work to do to get her there. What's it been like now that you're uh, you're on the team and training for that one day in April? Uh, I mean, honestly, as I said before, not a lot has really changed because for the past 15 months, um, I've basically been like visualizing and training for this. So like, you know, training hasn't really train changed drastically. I guess the difference is that as my, as the year's gone on, I've been getting better and better. So I've just been building on that. Um, also obviously like trying to stay healthy and uninjured and, all of that stuff. Um, you know, normally I do like to surf and do a few more other activities, but I've had to give up those things for now because obviously getting injured, doing something like that would be really stupid at this point in time. But, um, I'm still trying to just keep everything the same. Um, obviously a few extra things in the works now with media and stuff like that leading up to the games, that's a little bit different. But apart from that, you know, the plan has been the same from, the very first day, which was make that spot so far ahead of time that we could start working towards the goal of a result at the game. So um, everything's just been falling into place since then and keeping the body healthy and that's that's it really. Excellent. And what's it been like for you, Daz? Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but is this your first Commonwealth Games athlete that you've coached? Yeah, first, first Com Games and um... – it's a different experience for me because I'm not used to not following through with the athlete to the actual competition that's the goal. So it's a little different training someone and then handing them off. Um, it's, you know, I'm not complaining, but it's, it's different. So it's, um, for me, she has a goal of competing on the 8th of April, whereas my goal is to send her off like two weeks before that ready to go. So the, the timelines and the schedule is different. So um, in terms of the tangible goals, so there's that first one. The second one, my job is to keep her injury-free so she can compete the best that she wants. Her goal is to obviously max out every session and <laughs> hit, hit PBs like constantly and I'm, I'm of the other end saying, no, don't get fucking hurt, like <laughs> turn up in one piece, all that sort of stuff. So, so that's a little different. But, yeah. Maxing out is fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you guys, like I know what our approach was um, leading up into 1st of January 2017. What about what about you guys, Soph? Like did you have a goal of, of um, you know, like maxing out or getting a spot in December or, or what was your strategy? That's a good one, actually, because we had a chat about this just before Christmas last year, well, year before, obviously, and we set out the comps that we knew were going to be qualifying comps. We set out the comps that were going to be like minor stay comps, and then we had a look in terms of planning programming where I could reasonably peak for. So we obviously picked the international, we picked nationals, and we had half an eye on Oceania, so the three comps we knew were going to count. Well, like, cool, we'll aim to hit the numbers to qualify or at least secure first ranking at the international and then worst case nationals, worst case Oceania's. And that was the plan. And as the year went on, the plan kept changing, right? Because first I was on the 
not official international team for the international. So that didn't count, which meant I had to go overseas to tick the other box. And then by the time we got to nationals, a bunch of personal stuff happened. So nationals was slightly underperforming. So we're like, all right, cool, Oceania's. And then, well, we all saw how that went. And so it became trials. So as the year went on through changing criteria, personal circumstance, and just falling just short because of arrogance or whatever else, the plan had to keep adapting. So yes, there was a plan. No, it didn't come together at any point. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not laughing at you, by the way. I'm laughing because I can sympathize with you. (laughs) I bet. I bet. Yeah. Well, on that, so obviously we, as coaches and athletes, went into trials with two different goals and sort of two different situations. Myself and so. What are you eating, Soph? Is that a bag of snakes? No, that's, that's it was a croissant. It's yeah. gone oh. now. <laughs> For those who are listening, it was delicious. <laughs> Can confirm. <laughs> but um, yeah, so we're going into trials. Soph is needing the number one spot. You've already got the number one spot. What's your mindset going into the trial event? What are you trying to achieve there? So for me, I take every single comp um, with a grain of salt that someone is always going to try and beat me and someone could always be better. I always, and I've always competed like that in every sport I've done, that someone's working harder, someone's going after that spot just as hard as you. So mentally, I guess I wasn't under as much pressure or I had a different kind of pressure to what you had, Soph, um, where I had a quite a big buffer going in. I think I had about a 13 kilo buffer which was obviously took 13 kilos of pressure off. So um, <laughs> that that definitely changed um, how we attacked training going into trials because I didn't train for trials. I trained the start of what I wanted my comm games training cycle to be. So we just trained straight through trials without peaking at trials. So I guess that was one thing that was different. But also mentally, um, I definitely went in – guns blazing, ready to hold that spot too. I definitely didn't go in complacent. I went in there like ready for people to try and take that spot down. So the same time, I guess I had some same strategies as you guys. I just had a, my pressure was a little bit different. Um, I guess Daz might have also different opinions on it too, coming from the coach. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, um, my, the pressure, I felt pressure that I didn't want to like fuck it up for her. Yeah, but um, I, but it was also because we, we like our method of training is is just genuine. Every session is just bloody hard work. So you like no one rises to the occasion. You'll only sink to your training. So because we train really hard all the time, we know that if pressure is on, she's still going to be better than most because we know that most people don't train like us. So and I don't mean that from a point of arrogance. It was just like. If we put the work in, we know we put the work in, we can trust the work. We don't have to pray for a miracle or pray for a PB. We know that our everyday work is going to get us there. So we knew from day one, like our strategy, my strategy as a coach back in January last year was to, right, let's just show everyone what Pipline's capable of and let's go, let's go nuts and um, go nuts in effort, not in terms of result, but then put everyone else under pressure. So just like a football game, like I want to score as many points as possible in that first five or ten minutes just to, to make the other team like get under pressure. So it's the same in weightlifting. 
It's, if it's at the start of the year, I want you to boss every single person there, whether it's the result or whether it's the weight, the warm-up room, the weight room. The, it's like, I just want you to own it and then just to psych people out. And we saw some people crumble. And we, and we also saw some people like lap it up and go, oh yeah, it's like game on. So, which, which we love, like that's healthy. Like I, I like being in a, in a bit of a fight. Um, but for turning up to trials, I knew she had in the bag, she just had to stay uninjured through the warm ups. <laughs> that's all I'm worried about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you walk into nationals last year and you walk out and you are the talk of the town. Me or Pip? Me or Pip? Oh, Daz, any, any place you walk into, you're the talk of the town. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Just so don't like what they're saying, you know. Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> but, yeah, so you come out, you smash all the competition. You are now the front runner for the game spot. How did things change for you after that event? I guess going into nationals, um, those numbers weren't actually our plan. Like, that, those numbers weren't what I had in my mind, um, I had a little bit of a different, I had a, like a, a bit of a more complacent um, plan going into nationals. My training said otherwise because we had a really, probably one of my best training cycles I've done was before nationals as far as just technique um, finally hitting and being consistent. Um, squat strength finally kicked in and those 63 kilo chicken legs started to disappear. <laughs> um, but going into nationals, we really didn't go in with the plan. Well, I personally didn't. I think Daz's mind was different, but I didn't go in with the plan of getting that far ahead. I knew I could win and take the top spot, but I thought it might be a much closer race. Um, so that comp basically solidified all the hard work I was doing and and reassured me that like all of that hard work and patience as well in moving up the weight class um, was paying off. So then after nationals, um, we kept going, you know, same same plan was to just keep going. I had the buffer there, but that didn't matter to me in my mind. It was like, nope, there's, you know, you never know what anyone can do and you never know who's going to show up. So we just kept pushing, pushing. Um, I had a little bit of a, a tougher um, training cycle after nationals. I had a few little niggles, um, I had a sore elbow and stuff like that. So the training cycle after nationals was basically just to try and maintain strength without um, getting injured. And that was in the lead up to the, um, into the com champs and Oceania's. Um, and then I guess it was just working on my mental space, you're not to getting too far ahead of myself and not trying to go out there and prove anything to anyone. Um, yeah, it does. This is where you jump in. Yeah, it was, um, <laughs> mentally it was a lot different. So she immediately, cause Pip's a go-getter, so she, she, you know, destroys nationals and then thinks, okay, every training session, I am now going to destroy it. And it's like, that's not how it works. Like I had to really calm it down a bit, really get back into being goal focused instead of session focused. Um, obviously still working hard in sessions, but not being so obsessive about it. Not, not leaving a training session thinking, oh, well, I missed that one warm up snatch at like fucking 60 kilos. Like I'm terrible. Like that sort of mentality. And that Do you was, think that you could different. maybe just say that to Soph, just so she understands that that's the the way it works? It's um, well, that's the question I want to I want to ask you. So Simon, like, so Soph brings up the 
she had a whole bunch of obstacles put in her place in front of her last year and yet to make a lot of changes to your goal setting and your training schedules and stuff. Um, like as a coach, like how, um, how do how do you feel when that's going on? Oh, I feel pretty great, mate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, you, you, you lay out a plan, it's all going well and then it doesn't happen. So you, you feel pretty good at the end of all that sort of stuff. But, <laughs> you know, it's, again, I think you just, you ride the bumps with the athlete. Um, we, a lot of the stuff that was put in front of us, we didn't have a way around. Yeah. And every time we fell down, it was because we couldn't overcome the same obstacle that a lot of other athletes were were doing. You know, they were overcoming it. We just couldn't get it done on the day. Yeah. Um, the main one for us was the the end goal had always been the uh, same. The timeline was shifting every month. It's uh, it, it was something I want to touch on a little bit with you guys as well. Get your experience and your thoughts on it. But for us not being the number one athlete throughout the year meant that we were very uncertain about our pathway to the games. We didn't know if we were going to get an international badge. We didn't know if we were going to be able to compete. We didn't know what the selection policies were for certain comps. Some of them popped up, some of them didn't. And, yeah, we we didn't know uh, what was going to happen even if we did do the total at, uh, at trials. Uh, whether there was going to be a 69 kilo that could bump us out or, you know, potentially a 90 coming down. So, again, our goals were always set, but the timeline shifting and obstacles popping up left, right and centre. And, again, it's a credit to everyone that made the team and did well that they got around it. It's something that we'll have to reflect on next time we try for a big event or try, you know, for any sort of competition that we need to be smarter about how we go with our goal setting, not just plowing through and maybe having to reassess certain situations a little bit better. So, so like you do with all that going on, do you like, do you walk into the gym each day thinking about this sort of stuff or is it once a week you think about it? Like how do you, how do you manage that as an athlete? If we're going to talk about the run into the game specifically, so there's two categories of things that complicate the journey, right? Real life shit. So work, family, partners, friends, whatever, that sort of real-life pile of stuff. And then you've got the selection criteria bureaucratic pile of stuff. Two different concerns, right? The bureaucratic stuff, you know you can't do shit about. It's just going to be dumped on you and you have to deal. So as my psych says, control the controllables, that you just put in the pile of can't do shit about it, I'm going to do what I can, and with a bit of luck, the chips will fall in my favor. With the real-life stuff, Everyone talks about leave your shit at the door when you come in. Some days it's easier than others. You're underslept. You've had a rough week at work. Someone's dying. You know, stuff happens. That sort of stuff you try to put out of mind, but you generally can't. And even if you're not dwelling on it when you get into the gym, it weighs you down. Because you guys talked about it last week in terms of everything's a training session. You have stress at work, coaching, pip. You have a hard day at school. You have a rough interview, things like that. All of that weighs on your nervous system. And when you come in, you might not be dwelling about it because you know better than that. Still grinds on you. So I'd say no. When I come in, very rarely would I be stressing about criteria, what other people are doing, any of that, because I know that's just not in my capacity. What's in my capacity is to get in, get the work done to the best of my capacity and go home not broken. And that was the focus coming in every session. It's just how well that worked out dependent on what life stuff was going on in the general context. 
And I, I think that was one of the big hits after failing at a few competitions. Like, there were times I'd see her in the gym and she was untouchable. Like, you know, um, I hope you don't mind saying, like, they were they're going into into the Com Champs last year where Soph was lifting as a guest. She smashes a 90 snatch, a 116 clean and jerk, hasn't missed a clean and jerk for four weeks. She is unstoppable at this point. She goes into the Com Champs, everything's going great. One little slip up and it was all over, basically. Next few weeks after that, Jesus, was it rough? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's, it's, what, what more can you do on the day when everything was perfect? How do you come back from that? Because you kind of, you do doubt yourself and every athlete will relate to that. Like you running into nationals, Pip, you feel unstoppable and everything went well. So your mental space was good. You're just a little broken. Take the converse. You feel unstoppable. It doesn't work. You're not broken, but now you doubt if you actually were unstoppable or if you're just full of shit. And so yeah. that sort of doubt of, am I actually that good or was I just lucky yeah. is a really expensive mental flaw to make. Yeah, definitely. I can 100% relate to that. I mean, um, it was a little bit the same for me going into the Commonwealth Champs. Um, you know, our training and everything been going great leading off of um, nationals and everything. And then, you know, you let a, a few little um, doubts get into your head and you do what I like to call reverse bomb where you <laughs> hit your openers and then you freak out because you're like, I was way too stressed about my openers and I forgot that I have the rest of the comp to get on with. Yeah. And, um, yeah so, <laughs> so that's, I can definitely relate. And then, you know, I mean, it happens to everyone. You, you put too much emphasis on shit that you shouldn't. Um, but I mean, this is part of being an athlete is you grow from it. If you don't, you know, have the failures and the hiccups along the way, then you don't keep growing and getting better. So, you know. So what, what would you guys in retrospect, what would you change from last year? The things that you can control, obviously you can't change things that pop up, but if, would you, yeah, would you change any of your processes or training sessions or, or goal setting? What would be different? For, for me, the first six months I'd completely change. We, um, after, oh, look, I was quite happy with our result at the international. It sort of put Soph on the map. Okay, all right, she's coming. Things are going to work out. From, from there on out, when we found out that her result wasn't going to count towards international representation, we just straight up panicked. It was go to every bloody comp, let's get this Oceania qualifying total done. Didn't happen, missed it again by that much, that much. Go to nationals, where nationals was just going to be a fun comp for us where we're going to go down there, get some experience in the warm-up room with our competition. All right, we're going to use this pure as experience. It turned into another comp where we need to get a bloody total. All right, straight after that, it was doom and, doom and gloom, doom and gloom from there. I would happily change those six months. Just go, let's focus on only these comps. Doesn't matter. Things will work out. If they don't, there's always next time. Yeah, and I think that's where we did things a little bit differently. Like going into 2017 from 2016, we I can like remember very clearly the conversation we had. We sat down um, and had the co a coach athlete conversation and was like, right, we're going to map out from January until the Com Games trials, and we are not straying from it no matter what. So. 
we did that. We sat down, we mapped out exactly what we were going to do because I just came off, um, you know, the lead up to Rio doing way too yeah. many comps and being really burnt out and, and it not working and never being able to get stronger and put those numbers that I'd done in training on the platform because we were doing way too many comps. So learning from that experience, we sat down, we mapped it out and it didn't matter what anybody else did or what happened along the way as far as rules and um, policies and stuff happened. We had our plan and we stuck to it. And I think that definitely worked in our favor as well, because for once we weren't second guessing ourselves we just stuck to our guns and was like, yeah, this is what we're doing and we don't care what anybody else does. If it doesn't pay off, then it doesn't matter. It was our plan. So, you know. I think, yeah, that was probably – we tried to do the same thing, but, we again, shifting yeah. shifting the timeline may, means that we really didn't stick to our goals at all. Yeah. And we didn't stick to our plan whatsoever. And, I mean, we made assumptions about other people that we shouldn't have and we should have just backed ourselves in. So we were, we were doing the whole poker trick where we're playing other people's cards instead of, you know, playing our own cards sort of thing. And uh, ultimately I think that got us into a sticky situation. I know it did as a coach. So after Comp Champs, I was really disappointed in my decision-making uh, at the comp. But, um, yeah, I guess you live and learn and sometimes it's just a hard lesson. But, uh, yeah. How about you, Daz? Like how was Comp Champs for you, mate? Because uh, when, yeah, yeah, like when you when people were talking about his experience, you were shaking your head and looking pretty depressed there, and I think you reached for the scotch. But, uh, <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, what what was that like for you, mate, sitting in the stands? Um, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, you heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't happy in a whole bunch of bunch of things. It, uh, it's hard, like there's no, <laughs> I can't, it's just, it's just very hard. It was, it was something that didn't go to plan, but it was something that was out of both of our control and it was a very good learning experience. So, you know, you're sleeping in a different bed, you don't get access to your regular coach, you don't get access to the way you regularly do things, you don't get access to the, to your regular warm-up schedule, your regular protocol. It's So it was a great learning experience in, in that way. But for, for me personally, it was a complete waste of time and money and, um, mm. and it impacted our business greatly for absolutely no reason. And yeah. so I'm a little bit dirty about that. <laughs> but <laughs> okay. uh, it, it was good. But over, like that one comp was still better than our bloody trying to get Pip to Rio campaign. So that, yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was a positive. Um, but to touch on what you guys are doing, like with um, how you were playing – playing other people, like making assumptions about what other people would do and lift and all that sort of stuff. That was our experience trying to get Pip to Rio. Like due to Australia only earning one spot across a whole gender, Pip had to lift as a 63 for Sinclair, even though we knew all along if someone sits at 66, 67 kilos naturally, I mean, you, you don't lose weight and maintain strength. That's just impossible. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Fun, <laughs> fun yeah. fact, science says so, no. Yeah, so because, <laughs> of, because of Sinclair, we were having Pip walk around as just a bag of bones and trying to lift weights, and we also had some bad advice from multiple people saying that you guys have to go to as many comps as possible. So we did that, and obviously as a coach, providing duty of care for my for my athlete, like it really bothered me, but... um. You know, like a, an Olympic ticket, it's a pretty big carrot. So, 
Yeah. We, we made a whole bunch of assumptions. People are going to say this. Politically, it's better to do this. This person's going to lift this much. We have to do this. And it was just a torturous affair. So then when for last year's campaign, it was like, fuck everyone else. Let's to, and to make it easier on me too, as a coach, having a, having, um, like watching the board for me, um, is not a stressful scenario at all. Like it's, it's an easy, very easy thing. Um, because we have a game plan no matter what we're fucking sticking to it. So if Pip wants to do well on a given competition day, then she has to earn it every day in that training cycle leading up to it. So because we're not going to, if Pip needs to get, oh, shit, we've just figured out that you need a 10 kilo PB on your clean and jerk. Well, you're not going to get it. I don't give a fuck who you are. So you should have earned that in training. You're not going to stress me out <laughs> on the competition day because you want to pull something out of your asshole. It's like bad luck. Yeah. Um, so for, so yeah, last year was so much better, even though um, Com Chance was a joke. <laughs> yeah, and I think just going off what you said about um, – having a plan going into comp and not caring what anyone else does because I've earned it in training. It's I I've see that quite a lot where people will go into comp. They have an idea about what they're going to do, but then all of a sudden there's the bloody, like the books coming out and the coaches flustered like, Oh, if we get six kilos, that's going to get this record. So let's change the plan and get this. Or, oh, shit, this person's just hit that. So we're going to do this. And I guess for some people they like doing it that way because that's the game. But I quite often see it really hurt the athlete just so the coach can have the glory of, well, we got I played that other coach on the board and, you know, mm -hmm. and we got that record over them. And it, But then you see the athlete just get crushed and they're yeah. not going to say anything against their coach. So... For us, you know, we do things a bit differently. It's like I have a plan going in and we don't care what anybody else does. We stick to our plan no matter what. And that's mm. and that's how we do it. Because Pip earns that plan. She earns that tactic. Obviously, we're not stupid. Obviously, if she needs a one or two or three kilo PB to make something, like we'll go for it. We're not stupid. But to take the stress off her, she has to know. Like we just, we control everything we can. And that includes her weights. So we just yeah. control everything. Yeah. And I think, um, again, it gets back to this sort of this heartbreak and doubt because Oce uh, Oceania Comp Champs, that was that was us. We went in there and go, this is our plan no matter what. Snatches came off. Brilliant. Clean and jerks are going well. We take our five-kilo jump to, to 113. She cleans it and she stuffs it up in the re-rack. And it's like, that's all right. She'll get it next time. She'll go back out. She'll pump it up. Didn't happen. She she earned that one thirteen in training every week, every day, and it didn't come off. And again, that's where we were like really struggling to find answers after that. You know, I suppose on that, I'm not going to call it an excuse because it's actually a reason. But if you look at athletes who have made good choices over the year, right? The people that have done exceptionally well are those that have made good weight class choices. So we've got Pip, when you could finally, when you called it on Rio and you could move up and fill out the class you're supposed to be in, your leg strength grew exponentially as soon as you recovered from the Rio fiasco, right? You've got other people who are going up who consistently did make heavier clean and jerks in training. And then you've got us. Yes, I earn my lifts every day in training, but I earn them at 78 kilos, right? And I earn them at 78 coming down from 81. 
So in hindsight, it was really stupid of me backing myself to do that, having lost six kilos. But that's a lesson that I've taken away that you don't dump six kilos and make the same sort of lifts. So that's a great point. And so how do you guys manage your weight cut? Uh, very poorly, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> like, we stack it on really well, like none better. Like, <laughs> But, yeah, I'll let you speak to that, Soph. Well, that's because it's your domain. I suppose there's a bit of backstory to this, right? When I walked into weightlifting August 2015, I got on the scale and I was 78 kilos. So my first coach, Yurik Sakisian, was like, perfect, you're a 75. I did not get lighter doing weightlifting. <laughs> so over the course of the next two years leading into trials, I was sitting at 80 kilos really consistently, 81 when I got a bit tubby. And staying at 75 was necessary, same as for you, Pip, because that was the class out of which I could qualify because there was no way I could take Katie and Deb and all the actually big girls and the class above. So we stuck to 75 and I was never – below 78 for more than a week at a time like the whole year i consistently trained at 78 to 79 because below 78 the ass falls out of my strength and training is so poor there's kind of no point so i got really really good at cutting weight in terms of counting my macros i had a good water and salt load regime so the actual weight cut got progressively easier and i wasn't having such a bad time with it and i had it down to like I knew where I'd be on any given day in the two weeks leading up to a comp. So it was all really, really precise and the weight cut was fine. But the fact that I could physically do it didn't change the fact that I still lost six kilos and most of that went from my legs. And if you saw the comps that I did at 75 versus the comps I did heavier, that's the major difference. Your legs fade. No matter how good you feel, no matter how easy the cut was, you're just straight up weaker and there's shit all you can do about it. Yeah, I, I mean, I can totally relate. Um, I mean, mine is a little bit different, but so I'm I naturally sit, like if I don't train for ages and or if I'm just, you know, walking around normally not prepping for a comp, I'm about 65 kilos naturally. And I'm also very... Um, I've always been a very like lean person. Like I'm, I don't get fat when I stop training, I get skinny. So, um, trying to compete at 60, it does just stuck his finger up at me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so trying to compete just a couple of kilos lighter would absolutely zap the shit out of me. And I already was struggling with leg strength at strength as it was, um, just purely because of the sort of athlete I was before I lifted weights, I was a power tumbler. So, um, you know, I didn't come from a sport where I lifted weights. So squatting and stuff like that was something that we really had to work on. Um, but I was the same, you know, I would do the cuts like the night before, just try and cut all the water weight out. And I just found that it, was just it was just too much so I figured out how to keep the weight low just basically playing the calorie game um and looking at like keeping my salt down and stuff like that and I managed to keep my weight down at 63 um for like months but then I paid the price for that because then 
I was absolutely like fucked after that. I got really sick over and over again. Um, I couldn't put those numbers on the comp platform because as soon as you put me in a comp scenario, that little bit of stress and anxiety would just zap me even more. As you know, like I still have trouble with that now as a 69. I lose like a kilo overnight before a comp. So I'm eating like cheeseburgers at midnight before a comp. Um, <laughs> but yeah, as a 63, it was even worse. So I would be like, you know, trying to be really strict with my food and everything just so I didn't fluctuate. And then the night before a comp, I would drop another two kilos and then I'd go and compete at 61. <laughs> and not be able to clean and jerk anything. So yeah. I can totally relate. It's 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 a tough game and I take my hat off to people who can do it and and that can compete at their best while doing it. I don't know how they do it because I just I just couldn't, but um yeah, it's you know, it's tough. Uh, you know, we, we've spoken a fair bit about our challenges. Did you guys experience any challenges through last year? Were with anything like were did the policies uh, rub you guys the wrong way or did it put you out? You know, was the travel hard? Um, what what was life like for you guys? Obviously, being up in Newcastle, uh, you know, not in one of the major cities. Like, does did the whole process benefit you in any way, or were you disadvantaged by any of it? Oh, disadvantage is probably not the right word, but being new to it it um me personally there was little points of frustration at various things but but that's me not being used to it so it was also frustrating that uh, i couldn't like i didn't have a sounding board as well to, re to relieve my stress so obviously i'm not going to bring up issues with pip before she lifts at a comp and even even after the fact I, i've really learned to not say things after a comp as well because I, I don't want it to affect her uh, in, in any negative way. Um, so the, no, no one in particular, like being a business owner and, um, you know, flying around Australia for an amateur sport, I find frustrating that, that things aren't subsidized. Um, you know, I don't expect anyone to be professional level, but, you know, if you are representing your state, then the state should pay, I think. If you're representing anyone, that whoever that is should pay, like expenses. Um, and the fact that we work together as well, it's a, it's a big hit on us business wise. It's a big hit on, on Pip's study. I'm sure Sophie's got the same issue. Like if you've got a comp and you're doing a, a degree and taking on extra subjects, like that would be nuts. I would, I'd be freaking out about that. Like I know I've, uh, and even with my other clients, I've, I've delayed graduating my MBA several months because <laughs> competition dates don't mesh with exam dates and, you know, what have you got to do? You still got to earn money while you're trying to get qualifications. Um, that's probably the source of my frustration, and and just a just a little like not I don't hate it. It's just little, you know, it's just frustration. It's not hate. Um, the other little frustration we had, although we had a really good um, experience when uh, representing New South Wales, was that they just let us do our thing, and then and then the head coach would just nominate the weight. So I'd tell him what she's going to hit, and then he'd just go and write it down. So that was that was a great experience. I don't know other people don't have that experience. So I was thankful for that. That was that was great. Um, but yeah, just just small things of me getting used to the sport, how the sport works. That's all. Yeah, I think um, yeah. I think for me, a few of the 
things that were a little bit hard to deal with was obviously juggling a business with um, training and trying not to let, you know, the stress of that go into my training. Because when, when you work and train and do everything all in the same place, it, it does get, a, like, very monotonous. So um, for me, it's finding just that mental space where I can disconnect while I'm trying to get my work done and stuff. Um, but also just, I mean, I didn't really have any problem with policies and stuff personally because I went and got myself far enough ahead so that I, it didn't yeah. affect me too much. Um, and that was the plan all along. But I think probably, I mean, if we are talking about stuff like that, then I guess one thing that was frustrating for me um, was like me chopping and changing my routine and schedule to go and do things and to, um, you know, to follow rules that are set when other people weren't. And then afterwards being like, oh, well, we could have done it our way. I could have gone and stayed somewhere else or I could have like, you know, made myself more comfortable to have a better chance at performing better and not stressing myself out because as you know, as an athlete, stress is a number one killer. Um, you know, and I get so worried that I'm going to do the wrong thing because I want to I want to set a good example and do the right thing always, um, whether it's just in performance or policy. And then you see other people going and doing whatever they want with no repercussions. So for me as an athlete, that's very frustrating, especially when you're trying to do the right thing and other people don't. So that's definitely yeah, I think Soph can relate to that as well. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, luckily, our class didn't have so much of an issue of people playing the rules and getting away with it. We had a bit more of an issue of chopping and changing of policies. That meant certain people showed up to certain events and had certain results count or not count that no one expected was even possible. Or you have a rule announced on the day of like, we're like, Oh, by the way, so-and-so might be taking this spot in this situation. You're like, cool. I've got a lift in two hours. Thanks for letting me know. Yeah, and that sort of not so, Yeah. <laughs> it was a good time. Yeah. So I guess what, what does this come down to? Do you guys, well, you girls really, do you not feel supported uh, as athletes? Do you, is it, is it, and where does it come from? Is it, is it state, club? Is it national? What, where, where do you, where do you draw the line? What's, what do you, what do you feel when this sort of stuff happens? And how do you think it can be more fixed, for lack of a better word? I mean, Lack of support is probably, I mean, it's not complete lack of support. We do, we do get support. Um, I mean, as Daz said, like New South Wales State Association, for us personally, you know, it's been great. So like Daz was able to coach me at nationals and, and that was awesome. And that allowed us to get the job done that we wanted to, um, you know, with funding and stuff like that, I've personally been lucky enough to get a little bit of funding, which definitely takes a little bit of pressure off me having to work as much as I was. I was working two jobs at one point to pay for my sporting career. So as far as that goes, for me personally, um, I've had good support. Um, I just think it's more so the rules that chop and change for certain people and the rules that get applied to everybody else. Like I, I just don't think that – if some of us were to chop and change the way others do, I feel like there would definitely be repercussions for us and there hasn't been for them. So 
you know, I think there just needs to be a little bit more consistency across the board um, with all, when it comes to all of that, you know, a bit more transparency, a bit more consistency so that it's a fair playing field is probably what I'm getting at. And how about you, Soph? I know personally the Victorian Association, very much like New South Wales, very supportive of having personal coaches there and, and all of that stuff. But that, that's about the extent of the support from, from Victoria. Um, I know, obviously, Hawthorne as a club contributes a lot to, to its athletes going away. What would you like to see more? And what are your personal experiences with uh, being an athlete representing Victoria? Well, on that, I suppose I'll back what you said 100%. My home club, Hawthorne, has been incredibly generous and incredibly supportive of all the athletes. We'll call it the elite group, the ones that went to trials. Through the year, we actually received a fair bit of support for major comps. So the same people that went to trials went to a lot of the other majors, and we all received some help along the way, and that was brilliant. But I can't say that's a universal experience. It's only because of the pedigree, the history, and the resources of my club. And for us, don't get me wrong, that's great, but imagine how many athletes don't have access to that sort of support. At state level, it's great that they endorsed me the great privilege of having my personal coach, but I'm not sure that counts as support. Merely allowing the coach that got me there to participate in the comp, I don't consider that support. I consider them just not putting further roadblocks in my way. In terms of what support we want from our state association, I suppose we could take an example from Queensland because they have a massive geographical spread of their elite group and their clubs, and they regularly host training camps for their core group of lifters. That sort of thing at state level would be invaluable. And that's what came out of the athlete symposium at the AIS. Pretty much everyone said, don't throw money at us, host camps where we can train together. Because what do the core elite group of lifters in Australia lack? It's connection. Pips in Newcastle, bunch of us are at Hawthorne, couple of us are at Phoenix, bunch of us are at Cougars, WA. We're all so spread out, we don't have the benefit of training together and feeding off each other's energy. As anyone that trains alone will be able to tell you, you've got Ridge, you've got Pip, uh, you've got Brandon, who essentially trained by themselves and made it to the games. It's bloody hard work physically, but also mentally. So in terms of support, we need our federations to find a way to coordinate so that we can help each other. I appreciate our federation isn't rich, so we can't do a lot of those sorts of things, but at least facilitate connection. I'm a major fan of training camps, but I'm sure Daz will have a lot to say on this as well. Time and place. Time and place and content. Time, place, content. Uh, I'd like to hear both Daz and Pip's thoughts on training camps. I mean, for me personally, I I enjoy training camps because I do train alone 24-7. I'm lucky enough sometimes to have some visitors, um, which I love, but 99% of the time I train alone and quite often um, that really works for me, but sometimes it does get very hard. Um, and so then when I do go to comps where I'm with people, it can really throw me around because I'm not used to being around people. Um, so that makes me sound like a complete weirdo. <laughs> you weirdo. People. I live in yes, a cave. It does. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like I'm not used to sharing a platform and having everyone watch and all that kind of thing like that. So, you know, um, training camps for that respect for me are great. Um, but it's also, as Simon said, a time and a place like, 
you know, I work, like I'm helping run a business and it's really important that I'm here in that business. Um, and when I'm not here in that business, it's not good for said business. So, (laughs) you know, like I would love to be able to just like, you know, fly down to you guys once a week and, and train and fly all over the place, you know, and, and do this, but you know, it's gotta be, um, time and place needs to be appropriate. And, um, also length of the camp needs to be appropriate too, because, I know it like I'm not the only one. I know a lot of there's a lot of lifters at high level that um, do have jobs as well or or are studying. Um, so time out of regular schedule can really hurt. Um, I think it's just trying to find a happy medium where it could happen regularly without throwing people off too much. And whether that's just changing the location up every single time, um, having it just over a weekend instead of during the week. Um, I think it really needs to be about the athlete's schedules and not about everyone else's schedule. Oh, well, how about I, you, Des? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's your cue. That's my cue. That, that's your cue, yeah. mate. Yeah. I, I, um, I would – well, first of all, it's it's got to come down to what the athletes want. It's like as a coach, you're, you provide a service that hopefully someone wants. So if there's to be camps, it's – really got to service the athletes like it really has to i've been involved in a few camps not just weightlifting but a few camps across multiple sports and it appears that it's there to service the coaches egos not the athletes needs so i would like to see like a weightlifting camp if we keep it weightlifting to have all the lifters there all the coaches there you do a training session and it's like let's have a breakout session let's have like a round table weightlifters go the athletes go and have a round table with other athletes um it can be adjudicated or monitored by a non-coach okay and now while the athletes are doing that the coaches we're going to go and have our round table and then you get to swap ideas you get to suggest methods and protocols but also back it up with uh, the results of those protocols not just have it as you know an example, and I'm not putting shit on anyone, but you go to the IAS, the lifters are lifting together. It gives the opportunity for the coaches to see those lifters, but they're wasting the opportunity to learn from other coaches. Yeah, yeah. there's yeah, there's conversations on the side, but they're all like hands in pockets sort of conversations. Like there's nothing. And, and what are you going to learn from watching an athlete lift for one day? Like what are you honestly going to learn? You're going to learn fucking nothing. So you're only going to learn about that athlete from their coach and you need to have an open line of communication, a no bullshit line of communication with those personal coaches. So like you've got to foster that. So the camp on the coaches side should be more coaches at a training camp and for the first day or two, they're coaching their athletes and we have the national coaches sitting back and watching and communicating with the personal coaches, finding out what cues work what their quirks are, and then swapping that role. Have the the personal coaches sitting back, watching the national coaches look after the athletes. And does that not translate down the track to being able to work with athletes and all types of athletes and knowing your coaches and athletes better? I think that's actually a really viable route. I had the unique opportunity of going to Ashabat in September and Leo Isaac was our head coach, which was awesome. But I also had the additional privilege of having Simon there in a non-coaching capacity. What that actually allowed was for my personal coach 
to have extended interaction with my competition coach in which they did have those discussions. And because I've worked with Leo previously, on comp day, I realized that he had imported a lot of what him and Simon had discussed previously. So me and Leo had an extremely solid comp performance because he was able to bring his experience, blend it with what my coach told him and get a result out of me on the first coach on the first comp he'd ever coached me at. So I think that's a really viable way to do it. And yeah, and on, and on that, like I meant myself and Leo's interaction, it was very limited as well, you know, like we'd run into each other, I'd be working in the um, in the training hall at Ashabat there, just supervising, you know, Leo would come up and have a chat to me about Soph and I'd just say a few things to him and before you know it, she's training fine and I think, yeah, that was really, it was invaluable, that sort of experience and yeah, and she and she competed really well, and that for, and that was my first comp, like sitting sitting in the stands, watching her compete, and I was nervous as all hell, but she did well, and I, I think yeah, that that was a contributing factor to her success. I think. I um yeah, I think it's it's even easier than having the head coach just say you know national head coach watching a personal coach and then giving feedback after it. It's even easier. You just go up to somebody and say, "Oh, have you guys tried this?" and then that coach will say yes or no, and if he says yes, then you just walk away. <laughs> like, honestly, it's like, have you guys tried that? Yep. Oh, okay. Then it's as and simple as And if no, that. why not? Yeah, yeah. and exactly, because I know, um, like, when we had an experience with Coach Ma, the Chinese coach, a um, couple of years ago at the OAS, and he was like, have you tried this? And I was like, no. And then he explained it, and then we implemented it, and Pip has never looked back. Yeah. So it's it's simple. Like, I'm I'm... I'm, um, my ego's intact. I'm not going <laughs> to lie that I know something when I don't. And, and it's, it's as easy as that. I remember the first comp we, that I was, um, participating, we had, um, Marty Harlow and I was following when, when, um, Pip was lifting for his club. And then he was, uh, I, I was up there at Cougars and I was just following him around and he just explained counting the board to me. And I was like, okay, it, it, it's that easy. <laughs> I was like, yeah, done. Like, no, but honestly, I was like, yep, done. Sweet. So I didn't pretend to know how to count the board up until then. Um, Marty, like, not in terms of strategy, like he has his strategies and all that sort of stuff, whereas my strategies are different, but he just literally just explained the board, how the timing works, this is where the weight goes, this is where you nominate the weight, done. And then, yep, yeah, sweet, so I'm, I'm done. So, but, uh, yeah, I never pretended to know that beforehand. And... Um, and, and a good coach won't either. I always had, like, great interaction with Leo as well. At the last AIS camp, he was asking me a lot of stuff about Pip, gave him a lot of feedback, asked me a lot of questions about how we do things. I asked him questions about how he did things, and it was good. I had, had, it, was, it was good interaction. But I would, I would like it to be, like, an actual, okay, sit down. You, every coach has got 30 minutes or whatever they need to present their philosophies with each particular lifter and the science to back it up. And then, like, go from there. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know about you, Daz, but I, I like to hear another coach's perspective on things and athlete perspective. But it absolutely grinds my gears, like, the order of contact. So uh, you guys were down, right, uh, for a little little while last year. And me and Daz are having conversations. Most of them had nothing to do with weightlifting at all. <laughs> but some story. of them did. Yeah. <laughs> some of them did. And, you know, we're, we're talking sort of a little bit about plyometrics and, you know, doing some sprinting for Soph. Now, Daz doesn't walk up to Soph and go, you should start doing some sprinting. 
Daz comes up to me and goes, have you tried sprinting? And then he explains it. And then I go, all right, let's go have a chat to Soph. What I hate is having a coach see something, go up to my athlete and try and cue them, try to change something without addressing it first with their coach. How do you guys feel about that? I, I have to jump in. I have to jump in. We're, we're at the AIS camp in 2016. So this is, we're still trying to get Pip through Rio to Rio. And uh, we had Coach Ma there. And Coach Ma was like his weightlifting system is linked with my, with my protocols of SNC. So it comes from Russia, filtered through to China. So it's, it's essentially conjugate method, but a little more predictable. Um, so we're doing a lot of the things he's saying, do you do this? And we're like, yes. And he's like, great. Like we were literally on like a pretty, the same playing field. And then he changed this one, one setup position with Pip and holy shit, like everything, it was like she got, got a turbo bolted on her. Everything changed. It was brilliant. So we're doing what Coach Ma said and she is literally just starts tearing heads. Like she's killing it. And then this other coach turns up and then gives her this ridiculous cue that meant absolute fucking nothing. And then I'm like, no, no, no. Coach Ma has told her to do this. Looked through me like I was transparent and then starts cueing Pip again with this same ridiculous fucking cue, ruining everything. At that point, I just like walked away because <laughs> I had to bite <laughs> my tongue. And Coach Ma walks away, a guy who's produced multiple gold medal winners. So, yeah, that point of contact you're talking about, you, oh, fuck. <laughs> Kill me. And then I guess in that situation as an athlete, I'm highly frustrated because, as you know, as a lifter, if you've got four people telling you something while you're trying to pick a bar up off the platform, it is highly frustrating. Like, I've got enough shit going on in my head, like, <laughs> that I have enough trouble getting a hold of. Um, and if there's four people around me, telling me different things. It got very frustrating and I remember distinctly I lost my shit. Like I was like, okay, you all piss off and let me lift because it's getting ridiculous. Um, not that I want to coach Ma to piss off. But <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm like, I'm trying to get this down. And I was like nailing it with what he told me to do and we still adopt the exact same thing. And technically I have never looked back um, from doing exactly what he told me to do on that day. Um but it's very, very frustrating when it's like everybody's fighting to try and like posture to try and put yeah. their spin on what you're doing. And it's like, well, I'm not actually doing anything wrong. You're just trying to play super coach. Like, how about you let me lift? You know, <laughs> so it does get very frustrating. And, and I learned, well, I got reminded of point of contact once when Pip was over in the States playing um, the grid. Well, supposed to be playing the grid this one particular year. She got fucked over, so she didn't play. That's another <laughs> podcast episode. But yeah. um, uh, we were chatting with uh, Matt Fraser, and Matt Fraser was talking about when he was at the, like how he trains with other weightlifters. And then somebody, I can't remember who was at the table, and someone goes, oh, so if you see shitty technique, do you say anything? And he said, no, weightlifters will watch someone train for months on end and not say anything and then wait for someone to say, oh, what do you think of that? And then you will just be unloaded with <laughs> six months of technique cues and changes. But the, the big thing that I got reminded of is, is like shut the fuck up and only give your opinion when asked. Hmm. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, oh yeah, this, don't get me wrong about this. I will never knock a coach for coming over 
and giving their two cents to me about my athletes or any athletes. To you. It's just, yeah, yeah to me. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. To me. Do it to me. Don't go up to my athlete and disrupt them. Because right? you have no idea what's going through their head. You have no idea what we've been working on. And you know, it might just be a sour point for them. Like, it's like, yeah, yeah, I did miss it behind. Thanks for the, thanks for noticing. Like, you know, appreciate. <laughs> well, another thing was at that at that time as well. Like, I had a pretty serious injury. I had torn ligaments around my sacroiliac joint, so my shock absorbers were sh- like I was struggling with my pelvis and like my hips. So things were changing anyway, and. You know, but no one actually asked me that. No one actually asked me, how's your body? Like, and if they had actually asked me if I had any injuries, they would have known that I had a pretty shitty injury. Like, you know, as a weightlifter, you need shock absorbers and mine were gone. So still no one asked me if I was injured and if yeah, I was matter, setting hey. up because of that or if I was catching the bar weird because of that, it was like, Straight away, it was straight to, let's change her technique while she's here. <laughs> well, I think so. actually, she's written it down here. What's the thing that Coach Ma told you? No, it's a secret. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Daz doesn't read. It was to do with my setup position, though, and how I was pulling off the floor. Yeah. I'll tell okay. you that. But we don't want to give it away. It's our little secret. <laughs> well, how, how, much, how much is it going to cost? <laughs> um, bottle of Glen, Glenfiddich or... Uh... Hey, and I don't do, drink that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Daz has got a mouth. He, 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 he can tell and drink. <laughs> but, it's yeah, fine. it was basically to do with my setup and pulling off the floor. Um, and funnily enough, we were already doing a whole bunch of accessories that he told me to do to help with that, um, with that setup and, and that pull. Um, it's just that because I was pulling so differently to the accessories I was doing, they weren't meshing. And then as soon as I started doing the volume on the lifts of that technique and then mixed with the accessory work that I was doing, obviously, with Daz, um, that's when my my snatch and my pull off the ground just, like, it just went through the roof, you know. No more hips into the bar and, and that kind of thing. Nice, nice straight line. <laughs> yeah. All right, so... Over the last few episodes, we've heard from Phil Andrews about changes in the USA. Me and Daz have talked about it. As athletes, what do you want to see happening? What, as as where the do you true want... stakeholders. Yes. Yeah, where, where do you want to be going with the sport in Australia? Oh, geez, where do I start? Um, At the first, beginning. I mean, firstly... <laughs> Kindergarten, how was it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think definitely there needs to be changes with consistency and transparency of how um, policies for qualifying for events is done because changing it on the fly is not good enough. Um, secondly, and just as important to that is personal coaches. Um, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna give up my life and sacrifice a lot of shit, to compete for my country at the highest level possible and to do the best job I can for my country so that we do one day qualify more spots for the Olympics and more spots for other events, you know, then I need the person who is in the gym with me every single day with me at that comp to get the best out of me on the day because, you know, we're the ones putting in the work and sacrificing everything. Um, I want him there with me 
getting the best out of me. And for me at the moment, that's where my head's at as far as moving forward. There needs to be changes with that kind of stuff. Um, but that's just from a, like a performance perspective. Um, so if you might have some different ideas to me. I was just going to weigh in on the exact same line. I've heard this a couple of times in the past year that I've competed that you just need to suck it up and get used to working with different coaches. And while I get that because Australia is going to have a hard time either getting personal coaches to all major comps or building a unified enough system that coaches are familiar with different athletes, I also don't buy that because, as you said, the person who's going to get the best performance out of you is the person who's there 24-7, not a week of the year. And honestly, I reckon that's a major thing that needs to change. Yeah, we need some sort of main coach, but you definitely need your coach around because there's no other way around it. A different coach could never get the same out of you. Yeah, and I think definitely going on what you just mentioned then about um, maybe it being hard on a national level, um, like with funding and stuff, to get more coaches on a team. Honestly, it, it might seem a little bit harsh of a statement to make, but the coaches who genuinely want to be there for their athletes will make it happen. Um, exactly. And for me, like I can't speak for anybody else. I speak purely for myself and, and Daz. Um while ever I am pursuing this goal, Daz is going to back me 100%. Um, and it's always been like that in other – he's shaking his head now, but he doesn't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's not just in weightlifting, like in other sports that I've done um, where there were similar situations with there being different coaches at big events. Um, like when I did trampolining, there was always a national coach and assistant coaches that would – that were team appointed coaches. However, my personal coach had the option to pay his way and to be there. And he still got a coach's jersey for the Australian team or national or state team, whatever it was. And he worked underneath the national coach with me. Yeah, he paid his way, but it meant that every single comp, we got the best out of me because he was there next to me on the comp floor, working side by side with the national coach. And I really do believe that coaches that genuinely are there for their athletes, they're going to make it happen. Anyone else who uses money as an excuse or resources, then they just don't want it bad enough. In terms of what you said originally, the big change that athletes want, and I will speak for everyone because this affects everyone, and I've heard it echoed countless times, some freaking certainty about criteria would be spectacular because in the lead-up to the Com Games, it was particularly bad because we had, theoretically, we had other organizations shifting goalposts imposed on our federation, but there was also our federation trying to accomplish objectives like getting as many people possible in the pool and stuff like that, which resulted in changing criteria. Com Games is a bit special because it's such a significant event, but even for other events, selection criteria are rarely out early enough they're rarely clear enough and they're always subject to change. And none of us are full-time athletes. All of us have jobs, lives, kids, whatever. The only way we're going to compete as well as we can for our country, which is all we ever want to do, is if we can plan our lives appropriately. And the lack of availability to that information in a prompt manner is screwing everyone and it's screwing the country as a whole. Yeah, yeah. definitely. What, what do you think is the major positives that are happening for you guys at the moment 
as as athletes? What what's some some good things that we can we can talk about? I mean, well, I, I can only talk on my experience right now with um, leading into the Com Games. Um, I've been lucky enough to do a few little media bits, um, which will hopefully be coming out soon. Um, but I, I was really, really chuffed and honoured that um, CGA asked a weightlifter to be part of, you know, a media profile that they were doing. Um, because obviously, you know, we don't do a TV sport. It's not a glamorous sport and it's, it's glamorous to those of us who love it and who do it. But to the rest of the world, it's something completely different. Um, so being able to do these media bits and to get a little bit more, um, you know, exposure and to put the word out there, especially for women in weightlifting, um, to show that we're not all one stereotype, that for me is very cool. And I think moving forward, we need to keep that going. Definitely. Media is a big thing. And I think USA, um, weightlifting are doing a really good job of the media and, and making it more attractive to people signing up and, and competing in comps. Yeah, I'll weigh in on that as well. In terms of media stuff, for people that didn't make it to the games, there's other positive things that can come out of it. For example, my university, I'm at UniMelb, they've got behind me 100%. I didn't even realize this, but apparently they posted on Twitter, the university Twitter, about my comp games trials, about comps I did during the year. So you'd have people coming up to me in the halls going, oh, you do this. That's pretty cool. You don't look like a weightlifter. I always chuckle at that. But it's those sorts of opportunities and a little bit of exposure for the sport in a positive light that can occur at a really grassroots level that gets people involved, gets people excited, and builds the profile of the sport. So that's been really cool and really positive and something I didn't ask for and my university just got behind me. And I know that a lot of the other athletes at uni, UQ, I know is particularly good at it. And there's a couple others that don't spring to mind immediately that have got behind their athletes 100%. And that's been massively positive. On a broader athlete pool sort of level, what's been really cool in the past year is that the trips we have taken, the camps we have been on, it's fostered a better relationship between the athletes. So even though we're all spread out, we are all much closer. So we've got more access to each other and we can feed off each other. I've been fortunate enough to build some really good relationships and you can bounce ideas off people. How are you feeling after trials? How are your energy levels? How are your enthusiasm levels? What are you doing? And having those sorts of discussions, what you mentioned previously, athlete roundtables, that's been going on in an informal way. And I've personally found it really helpful. And I know a bunch of other people have reflected similarly in terms of what are you doing for training? What are you doing to fix this? What accessories are you doing? And it's just swapping ideas and swapping experiences, which have been a community experience, which has been really, really positive. Yeah, and I think it's it's funny because um, – there's a very different experience for a lot of us. Like for me, I'm like, I obviously lift at my own club that was created for me to lift. <laughs> like we have, we're trying to get other lifters um, coming through, but mostly it was so that I could lift. Um, so it's funny when people like, like for instance, I had Ebony um, Garinchu come and train with me a few weeks back, which was awesome. She's a legend. And people were like, I didn't know like, didn't know you were friends and she was getting it too like oh I didn't know that you guys were friends and it's like people who are really sheltered by their clubs and yeah. and don't see the bigger picture it's like yeah well we've traveled together and we got along really well and like 
so she messaged me and was like, can I come to Newcastle? And I was like, hell yeah, like you can come <laughs> to Newcastle anytime you want, you know? So it, it's, it works outside of the clubs too. Um, the more we all work together, the better it is for us all, rather than being sheltered by your club, you can't go train with them or you can't do that. You can't do this. Yep. You know, it's like, well, hold on a second. I'm the athlete. Like I pay the fees. I do what I want. I'm the one lifting the weights. So I think what I say matters, you know? <laughs> yeah. What, what's it? So you guys talking about like uh, having more round tables and more community and, and media. What, what would be something in a smaller view, like a, at a club setting, what, what things as athletes would you like to see happen to help make weightlifting more attractive to potential lifters? At a club the level. big thing that Hawthorne has done recently, which has been very successful, is paying our coaches. Who would have thought that gets things done? In the time that we've started this little system, we've attracted a bunch of other lifters because Simon has had time and capacity to take on beginners, which is usually not a luxury we have. We usually screen people and we go, you're going to take too much work. I don't get paid for this. I'm sorry, I can't. But the ability to take on baby athletes and people that have never lifted before has been enormous because people come through the door, people make inquiries, people want to try. Clubs can't facilitate because no one's paid. So if I was going to pick one thing, it's that. It's putting in place systems, and we've proven it's not hard, that get coaches remuneration for what they're trying to do. Yeah, I think, yeah. Like, I mean, uh, one, uh, one of the coaches that I uh, spoke to, he was working at Hawthorne as well in volunteer capacity last year. And this theme of we have constantly devalued our sport. It's like you can't make money off weightlifting. Our athletes aren't going to make money. But what what are our what about like sort of plans been? What have what have we been doing? No one will pay a weightlifting coach. They will if they get you somewhere. You know why can't an athlete go out and get a sponsorship? Because oh, we're not marketable, but we are because we're not just weightlifters. We're good athletes. And I think this is what everyone forgets. It's what, stop saying that we are not marketable. Stop saying that we are not valuable. Like, Daz, look at you. You're a bloody champion in what you do. All right? but you're, oh, you're don't tell him that. His me, head's getting bigger. That's just cost me no. 50 bucks. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Send <laughs> the <Well>, check. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like, your primary function is not to produce weightlifters, but you produce weightlifters. Right? People are going to pay you to produce them as a weightlifter. But it's not what you do. You produce athletes. Uh, I think that's what we get stuck in this mindset of. Uh, and you know, to clarify, I'll still coach voluntarily. I still do because I love coaching. But I also need to make a living. And as you've touched on this many times, and again, time, money. Yeah. What, what about you, Pip? Is there anything that you think um, that – you think would be a positive change at club level to help introduce people to weightlifting? Oh, I mean, it's a, it's a tough one. I'm, I come from Olympic sports as well that are very, very much like weightlifting, um, in that club and state, um, you know, well, I'm sorry, I've just gone mental blank, but yeah, the club, you know, (laughs) in gymnastics, it's, it's club, state, national, that's how it works. It's the same thing. Um, and in some ways it works and in some ways it doesn't, you know, like I feel like there's 
some clubs are at an advantage being a club and other clubs aren't. Like, I mean, look at like us here in Newcastle. We're out here fending for ourselves because we're in Newcastle, you know. Um, but then you've got other clubs in other states that are getting funding, they're getting equipment, they're getting like so much stuff, which is awesome to grow the sport if it's used correctly. You know, I feel like it needs to be shared around a little bit more. Um, especially all over Australia, not just in one state. And I think that's kind of where it's going wrong a little bit is that um, like a couple of states over the others are getting all the resources. And yeah, I mean, majority of the athletes do come from those states, but is, is anyone asking the question why? <laughs> like, yeah. Why is it? It's because they've got resources. They've got, they have not only their clubs are getting resources, but their, their state institutes are working and they're, they're part of their state institutes. Um, like I, I was lucky enough leading into the comm games. I got a little bit of help from N Swiss, but once the comm games is over, that's it. Like I have nothing to do with N Swiss again because they don't have anything to do with weightlifting. So that means that I have to go and source my own sports psych from my own pocket. I got to source my own physio, chiro, massage therapist from my own pocket, which I do. Um, you know, all these things that come with state institutes are really invaluable to athletes and athletes that have them don't realize how lucky they are. Because I tell you, like my biggest expense is my chiropractor and, you know, um, nutrition and, you know, mental health, all of those things. It's not, you know, luxuries. It's stuff that I have to do as an athlete that really should be provided to me when I'm competing at this level but it's not. Yep. And I think that a lot of athletes are in the same situation as I am. So, Yeah, 100%. And this is across the board, whether you're studying, whether you're working, you're studying less and you're working less to compete. It's just there's no ifs or buts about it. And for many of us, it becomes a point of, do I see my sports psych this week or do I get a massage? Do I care more about my broken elbow or am I having a mental crisis? And having to make those sorts of trade-offs is so unproductive because we all know it's not just what sort of shape your body's in. It's what sort of shape your mind's in. And when you can't afford to do everything or you have to work so you don't even have the time to do it, it screws you. And that's the difference, I suppose, between different countries that have better funding models is that those services are provided for athletes. You've got to pump money into athletes before they can produce any results for you. So if it's like a chicken or the egg situation, do you fund the athletes before they make results or do you fund them based on results? It has to be funding first. The British experience shows us that. They pumped money into weightlifting. They dominated the next Com Games. They've pulled their funding. Their athletes have literally moved across the world because they can and they don't get any support at home. Yeah. Evolution is actually um... – answered that question, chicken or the egg, it was the chicken. There you that's, go. That's an actual fact. You can look that up for any, any um, overly religious people that are listening to the and podcast. Anyway, I'm going to change the subject quickly back to what Soph was talking about <laughs> before we get into that debate. But, um, yeah, definitely, like, and, and f- going off funding, it's like funding personally, I think, um, and this is going off what one of my friends, Molly Gray, who plays rugby for Australia, so – their funding model, what she, what she would get, instead of just getting a lump of cash thrown at her, and I think in the past we've seen that athletes get cash thrown at them and 
it doesn't go into their weightlifting career. Um, you know, with Molly, what she was given was the, the, um, whatever the, I don't know how it works in rugby, the association or the institute gave her a credit card. And that credit card had a, obviously has a statement that can be tracked. And that credit card was only to be used for services that were for her athlete life. So Cairo, physio, dietitian, um, sports psych, um, if she needed to buy tape, if she needed to buy a new pair of boots, um, you know, all those things that were purely for her athletic career. And I remember her telling me she bought a, a pair of um, skins or something compression tights and she got in trouble because they were like well you need to prove that you need these because on the <laughs> statement it comes up as just you know like a rebel sports purchase it doesn't say yeah, compression yeah. tights like prove to us that you bought compression tights like that's how strict <laughs> it is but how good is that though that and that's all we need you know, compared to like oh yeah you've reached this percentage um we're not going to do any background checks here's here's five grand cash hmm God knows where that money's going. It's not going back into the sport, that's for sure. You know, rent in the casino, Siggy <laughs> <laughs> butts and alcohol. No, not. That's that's I'm joking. I'm joking. But seriously, like it's you know, I think it definitely needs to be tracked better. So yeah. what's what's the next step? What's the, what's the evolution for us then? Can do we approach this at club level, state level, national level, or do we, does it have to be a like a combined fight between all of us to uh, to get this thing to happen? Well, with, uh, with what we're doing at GCS Weightlifting and GCS Training is we've got a media department, so we're starting to pump out some um, appealing, attractive, cool-looking videos to promote the sport of weightlifting and training. Um, we're about to launch a weightlifting series, the first yeah. one down at uh, Hawthorne Weightlifting Club. Um, we're trying to organise some training camps, which we'll uh, make public shortly, that are going to be cool and that are going to be cool. <laughs> it's, it's actually going to be athlete-centric. It's not, a, it's not going to be um, come on down to the GCS show. It's going to be come and see what we do, but you can take it or leave it, and we're going to provide other activities and venues and resources for those athletes while they're here. So we're sort of taking on board what we learnt from Phil's discussion and and what we've always spoken about anyway. It's like you're either a part of the problem or a part of the solution. So we're trying to be a part of the solution by providing the things that we would like provided. So we're putting our money where our mouth is, basically. And we're going to gather around a campfire and sing Kumbaya. Oh, yeah. Talk about feelings. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's the most important thing. It's about how you feel. Oh. Hungry. Always. <laughs> Constantly hungry. Well, look, I think that's a good note to wrap it on. Um, like to thank you both for taking the time to sit down. I know you both have very busy schedules, especially you, Pip, leading into April. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> but, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. And we'll hope, we'd love to get you guys, well, again, love to get you girls on uh, at some point uh, in the future. You, uh, you athletes are keeping us with a – finger on the pulse and what's going on so it's your insights very valuable and much appreciated thanks for for having us Ah, too easy all right well that's been another episode of between sets with daz and simon hope you enjoyed the content and we'll uh we'll be with you pretty soon take care